Welcome to this edition of the Oxford Comment. My name is Max Insheimer, and I'm the Trade Reference Editor at Oxford University Press in New York. I manage a series of food and drink related encyclopedias, beginning with the Oxford Companion to Beer, which came out in 2011, and continuing to the Oxford Companion to Sugar and Sweets, which comes out next April 2015. In early July, I flew to England to attend the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery, a weekend-long event held at St. Cat's, part of Oxford University. Nearly 30 of my culinary reference authors were attending, and it was a rare chance for me to meet people I had, in some cases, been emailing for three or four years. It was a rare, warm welcome to a group of chefs, culinary historians, cookbook authors, and all-around foodies. The weekend consists of a series of talks on various food topics given throughout the day, punctuated by tea and coffee breaks and catered lunches and dinners. This year's theme was food and markets. It opened with a talk by the Irish chef, Darina Allen, on bringing back farmers markets to Cork. The Harvard literature professor, Janet Beezer, gave a talk on harlequin merchants in 19th century Paris, who were merchants that sold leftovers from the wealthy to the poor. Janet asked her friends to save their leftovers from throughout the weekend, and she demonstrated how artfully harlequin merchants displayed their wares by pulling half-eaten fish heads out of a stew pot and telling the audience it was only a little bit nibbled on. The historian Andrew Dalby gave another memorable lecture about how in the Aegean Islands, markets would assemble not at a specified time, but whenever a boat came into port. Since ferrymen might not be able to accept a goat or other bartered goods on short notice, this may explain why coinage was invented to deal with perishable goods. Suffice to say, the sessions were fascinating, but equally interesting for me was getting to sit down with a few of my authors to chat about their interests generally, but also their work on the Oxford Companion to Sugar and Sweets. I recorded these conversations with their permission. On Saturday morning, during a tea and coffee break, I met up with Laura Mason. Laura is a widely respected food historian who grew up on a farm in Yorkshire. One of her mentors, Alan Davidson, was the founder of the symposium and the editor of the Oxford Companion to Food. I've been lucky to have Laura on the editorial board of the Oxford Companion to Sugar and Sweets. I've been working with Laura now for nearly three years, and it was so nice to finally put a face to her name. I started things off by asking Laura whether any of the sessions stood out in her mind. I think possibly the, just the last one I've been in, which was Gillian Riley on visual aspects of things to do with markets, on genre paintings from the uh, probably from the 14th to 17th centuries. Always very good visuals, Gillian, uh, thought-provoking things to say about them. Uh, and in her case, she was looking at some of those fantastic still lives with vast numbers, vast baskets of flowers and fruit and meat and fish and all sorts of things and asking questions about the symbolism of the pictures. That was a good session. I attended that as well and uh, I, I, uh, I loved it. I loved her sense of humor. Uh, she's got a, it was always kind of pointing out what's really on, uh, uh, you know, for sale uh, when there's a, a young well-endowed woman, uh, you know, with a, with a kind of creepy guy looking over her shoulder. Uh, she made a lot of uh, funny comments about uh, the lasciviousness of uh, uh, nature of some of these paintings. I'm going to move us now uh, to um, 
another topic, um, and that is uh, sweets uh, and your interest in uh, in all things sweet, really. And I'm going to do so for a selfish reason. We have uh, a book that we've worked together now for almost two and a half to three years, I, I think. Uh, and it's called The Oxford Companion to Sugar and Sweets. Laura is one of our five area editors, uh, all overseen by Dara Goldstein, uh, the editor-in-chief. And Laura has, uh, has come to our attention, uh, came, came to our attention first, um, for having published a book, Sugar Plums and Sherbet, The Prehistory of Sweets. Wonderful. And how does one become interested um, in sweets, uh, and how did you first set out to write the book? The subject was suggested to me by the late Alan Davidson, the person who actually founded this symposium. And somehow I'd managed to impress him with a certain amount of scientific knowledge that I've gained about food in general, but also sugar. Um, I must say I'm not a scientist, but my degree involved a component of food science, and somehow this had become thoroughly internalized. And when Alan wanted somebody to write about sweets, I began to realize that the key to understanding the history was actually to understand the chemistry of sugar as it's boiled with water, as it gets hotter, what happens to it, how the states change, and how you can observe this. And that is the whole basis of making what we in the UK call sweets and what people in the States call candy. Right, and uh, there was a whole uh, discussion on, on what the title might be for this book that we're working together on, and that was because Sweets, uh, with the original title being The Oxford Companion to Sweets, is a little bit more narrow uh, in the UK, um, something more akin to um, boiled candies, what we'd call, and uh, whereas the book we're working on together now is is so much broader than that. I mean, it's cakes and pastries and it's jellies and spoon sweets and uh, about 600 other <laughs> topics and the neuroscience of sweetness. Um, it's, it's a very eclectic group. So I wonder, um, Laura, if, if you might um, think for a moment about what one of the most interesting entries that you've had to review, because as area editor, Laura has reviewed close to 100 or possibly more than 100 entries and she Surely, despite her immense knowledge, there there is uh, there is an element of learning uh, to the process of you know being of editing um, a, you know a set of entries that broad. There's definitely an element of surprise. I think actually the entry which captured my imagination was birds' milk candies, uh, something Dara had written about as some uh, a speciality of the former Soviet republics. I'd never heard of this. You know, I was thinking, gosh, well, what's birds' milk? And how do you make it into a candy? Um, well, I'm not going to spoil the surprise. I think I am going to spoil the surprise, uh, just because I think it's so fun, um, and um, there will be plenty more surprises to come when, when it publishes in, in April. Um, next April. So bird's milk, um, I gather from Dara, is so named for the scarcity um, of these candies, which are, um, I guess, chocolate. I don't know if there's some kind of marshmallow or something in the middle, I believe. And it was so difficult to procure during Soviet-era Russia, um, and I guess it was popular all over um, the Eastern Bloc, that uh, it, finding it was like you know being able to milk birds impossible. <laughs> uh, so that that I think, if I remember correctly, is is the is the history of it. You're working now on a book on uh, picnics and picnic recipes, and uh, I, I'm curious, you know, so what are 
what are some of uh, the better picnic recipes? Is it a historical recipe book? Is it, uh, just tell me a little bit about it. It's for the National Trust, which are a big organization in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. They own a lot of historic houses and land, and at the moment, they're very worried about the fact that children in the UK spend a lot of time in front of the television, and they're encouraging they have a campaign to encourage children and families to spend more time outdoors. It's an entirely contemporary book. Uh, usually I take a lot of historical material and work it in, but this is much more contemporary, um, much more multicultural. Uh, I've had a great time lighting campfires in people's back gardens and uh, getting the barbie out. And I think there are two recipes that really stand out. One I tried, um, it's, it's a horrible name for a recipe, but it's called beer butt chicken. Uh, and you take a can of beer and you pour half of it away and put, you put the can and uh, you sit the chicken over the can with the rest of the beer in it. And then you put the lid on the barbie and you cook it very slowly for an hour and a half. And if you've got the right kind of rub on, it's absolutely fantastic. It's the best way of cooking chicken I've come across. And the other one I discovered just this week when I did light a campfire in somebody's backyard. Uh, actually, you don't need a campfire for this. What you need is an area where you're not going to set fire to the forest and you need some mussels, some shell, the shellfish collected off the rocks, and you need a heap of pine needles. And you put your mussels in a layer on the sand and you put the pine needles on top and you set fire to them. And when the flames have, fanned have died down and you fanned all the ash off, you have some really beautifully cooked mussels. Uh, I've never done it before. I thought it was great. I'm so glad I asked that. Thank you so much, Laura Mason. Well, thank you. Later Saturday afternoon, I met up with Adam Balich, who was a contributor to the Oxford Companion to Sugar and Sweets and just an all-around fascinating guy. His day job is as a scientist living in Edinburgh but he somehow finds time to pursue serious food history. I began by asking him about his dual interests. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a scientist by training, and I'm a, de a developmental biologist and an immunologist. So basically I work with how the immune system work, develops and works. My interest in food is, is part of a wider interest in learning about things in general, and that's scientific curiosity is what got me into science and being curious about food and food culture is what got me into looking at food history because in in some respects the things that I'm not interested in, I'm interested in there's not much information so then you have to go and find out the information for yourself so you've been here for a day now uh, any particularly interesting um, sessions anything you've loved uh, and stood out and uh, maybe just tell us uh, what number symposium this is for you uh, yeah this is my third symposium now and uh, I uh, I've seen quite a few good talks actually. There was one this morning that was particularly interesting on German mercenaries and how they actually needed to be fed and it was it sounds very dry, but actually it was pretty ex interesting and exciting to see, which was a big surprise. You did a couple of uh, entries for the Oxford Companion to Sugar and Sweets that, you know, it's just such an eclectic, broad range of topics uh, that we are co covering. Um, I, I think maybe our listeners would be surprised to hear what, what you covered, um, which was fritters and, um, I believe, fried dough. Uh, those were the two? Yeah. 
there are such draconian word limits uh, on some of these entries in a, in a book this large. So uh, this is your chance. Um, tell us something interesting with, with uh, uh, no cutoff um, about either fritters or uh, fried doughs generally. Yeah, I mean, they were both incredibly interesting topics. And they're, both of them obviously involve frying. And uh, that's an expensive process for, for most cultures. So uh, in some respects, I was privileged because most of the things I was talking about are, are going to be special special occasional feast dishes. Now, we live in sort of in a Western, westernized context. Um, frying is no longer a problem. And so a lot of these special treats that would only be served on special feast days or for, for, for other celebrations are just everyday things. And so in some respects, it's, it's, it's interesting to compare traditional sense of something being very special to something that's now just a snack. Um, and you can see that with, you know, the donut. I guess is a really good example of that. It goes from being a special feast day dish to you know, something that policemen eat. Adam and I were sitting together at dinner last night, and he was telling me a little bit about um, his collection. I'm not sure if it's a collection yet, but you certainly have at least one um, of the rosette maker. Yeah. And uh, can, you, can you tell our listeners uh, where you found it, what it is, um, and uh, why you love it? So the, the, uh, the rosette irons or, or fritter irons have been around for a long time, and they've got this ubiquitous distribution over the globe. So you get them in Thailand and Afghanistan and in Turkey in Spain and France and in Scandinavian countries but they're not very well known and some of them are very beautiful they're carved in they're they're made into quite intricate shapes and patterns and they're also when you use them people are unfamiliar with the with them they think you're a cooking god so it's quite nice to be able to to use something like that that's so simple and gives people like a lot of pleasure I um, be interested in finding out more about and I'm actually don't know much about them myself that's part of the reason for coming to the conference here and speaking to different people about it and I, I wonder um, the, I think the iron that um, a lot of people might be most familiar with is you know Belgian waffle makers so the yeah the waffle irons have been around for a very long time and there's a sort of a continuation in waffle irons going from um, the sort of risen irons to small like wafers and the wafer irons are obviously often used in a, a religious context within the Christian community but they're also used out with the Christian communities as well and they are again they're, they're special objects and sometimes they have a lot of symbolic significance attached to them um, so I think in a, in a Christian community even if you had a, a, a wafer in a secular context, it would be difficult actually to remove yourself from the other connotations that that has. And do you have any um, projects at the moment, um, now that you've turned in uh, your excellently written entries on fried dough and, uh, and fritters, uh, what, what, um, what do you have going? So at the moment I've got two pro- uh, projects that I'm interested in. Um, the, the first one is, a, is quite a broad topic and it's about how there's Scottish people historically perceive their food and whether they perceived it as being um, inherently Scottish or just part of a, a wider com- community of Northern European foods. Um, the other topic I'm interested in is something that's come up recently is that I've come, come across a lot of recipes for fermented dairy products. So Northern European fermented products like uh, cultured buttermilks and sour creams and sour milks and, and various cheeses and that have been made from those products and and this seems to be very extinct in, in Scotland now but it 
basically only died out fairly recently, and it's still extant in Scandinavia and in Middle Europe and and also throughout Russia. So there's these interesting uh, parallels with some northern, other northern European countries with Scottish cultural background, which is not shared with England, which is actually unusual because most things in Scotland in a culinary sense are also found in England. Adam, it's been an absolute pleasure working with you over the last few months. Thanks, Max. In the early evening on Saturday, just before a toast to celebrate the new edition of the Oxford Companion to Food, I met up with Fuchsia Dunlop. Fuchsia is a food writer with a particular expertise in Chinese cuisine. She has just won two James Beard Awards, the first for a book she wrote called Every Grain of Rice. The second, however, is a little bit more interesting. She won an award for an article she wrote for the magazine Lucky Peach on her adventures attempting to cook stag pizzles. I couldn't help but ask for some backstory on the latter. So Fuchsia, tell me, how did you get onto this topic? Well, I mean, I know this sounds highly improbable, but I was accidentally given a bunch of stag pizzles, as they're called in the trade. Um, I had been mentioning to a friend um, that some Chinese chefs I knew got very excited at Borough Market when they came to, across a wild venison stall. And they said, Fuchsia, Fuchsia, you have to tell the owner that if he can find a way to dry the pizzles, the penises, and export them to China, he'll make his fortune. So I happily told this anecdote at a dinner party. And my friend got the impression that I was burning to cook them myself. And um, she told all her friends in Scotland, who included these deer stalkers, that she had this friend dying to cook stag penises. And then before I knew it, she was texting me to say that she'd got a bunch for me, frozen them, getting them to London. So what, what choice did I have? So um, I had to do a bit of research and cook them. And it was one of the most hilarious um, <laughs> cooking days of my life. I, I had um, I managed to persuade, well, without much difficulty, the very daring editors of Lucky Peach, the food magazine, to commission a piece. And um, and then we got a photographer, Sophie Gerard, to take pictures. And um, we just had the most hilarious, gruesome, smelly, surreal day. Can you go into a bit of detail on how uh, how they are prepared traditionally? And, and where in the world uh, is this, is this uh, something you might find? Well, in Chinese culinary culture, um, they're the ultimate sort of tonic food for men. They drung yang. They can boost the yang energy of the body. And um, dried stag penises are extremely expensive. Um, so they're one of these medicinal foods. So um, I did a bit of research from Chinese cookery books and food encyclopedias, found various recipes, and also called a few chefs I knew in China for advice. It was quite a slithery and tricky and <laughs> unappealing task. And then in Chinese cooking, because they're gamey and they have a sort of slightly unpleasant smell, you have to sort of purge them by repeated blanchings with wine and you know tea leaves and things like that. So you sort of rinse away all the, the unpleasant aspects of their flavor. And then you cook them. And one, I made a tonic soup, so I... Um, cut one up and cooked it with a chicken, a free-range chicken, for I think about five hours um, because it's quite tough, you know. And um, so the chicken gives the sauce its flavor and the pizzles have a sort of rubbery mollusk-like texture and this tonic properties and also some Chinese herbs in there too. So Fuchsia, you wrote a terrific entry on China uh, for the Oxford Companion to Sugar and Sweets. Can you tell us a little bit about what sweets look like in China? Um, and maybe also just about 
Um, how did you become a China cuisine expert? Well, um, I always loved cooking from early childhood. And then I got into China through a job I had after university. I read English literature at university. Um, so I got very interested in China, went on holiday there, started learning Mandarin in evening classes. And I just got rather obsessed and fascinated. And um, then I got a British Council scholarship to go to a Chinese university for a year. And I was actually supposed to be doing something else, but um, ended up being totally sidetracked by the food and spending most of my time in restaurant kitchens and sort of learning the Chinese characters for f various kinds of food, deciphering menus. And then I ended up enrolling at this chef school and I think I'm probably the first Westerner to have gone to a chef school in China and I was for, for several months in this class of um, 50 young Sichuanese men, two other women, learning the arts of Sichuanese cookery. So that's how it all started. Uh, and about the entry in the book, well I mean it the thing that's very striking is that sweet foods are just much less prominent in Chinese food culture than they are in the West. For example, you know, you don't have the concept of a dessert course. And most Chinese meals in most parts of the country won't have any particularly sweet foods. Um, if you finish, if you have something after the meal, you'll have fruit. Um, and having said that, um, there's a, of course, they use sugar and sweetness in foods. But the, the sort of borders between sweet and savory are much less established in the West. Um, and it's also very regional. So, you know, in Sichuan, for example, some of the spicy dishes will have a sweetness to them from sugar in the sauce, not just sweet and sour, but other variations. And then there are some parts of the country, for example, Suzhou near Shanghai in the east, um, where they're famous for their sweet foods. So you might have ham with sugar and pine nuts as an appetizer, or you might have a slow-cooked pork belly with a very sweet sauce. Um, and the other a striking difference with China is that you know two whole kind of families of sweet dishes so important in many Western cuisines um, dairy foods and um, chocolate are largely absent from traditional Chinese foods instead you have fruits and root vegetables and nuts and things like that and lard often taking the place of butter and is there even uh you know the idea of a, a sweet shop or a, a vendor a market stall anything like that or, or no it's really it's really just incorporated into uh, uh, you know savory or other kinds of dishes no you do have plenty of sweet foods and sweet dumplings and sweets candies um, which are normally sort of eaten as snacks between meals so for example in Chengdu they have vendors of ding ding tang ding ding candy um, named because the street vendors use a kind of metal clapper which makes that sound and that's a malt sugar toffee so there are other sort of sweet and then you get various kind of dumplings that might have, for example, a sweet black sesame sauce um, inside um, or meat. So they can go either sweet or savory. And um, yeah, and then there are lots of sort of sweet cakes and so on. And, and some, like in Suzhou, there's a very famous cake shop which has a lot of sweet, colorful cakes and pastries. Saturday's dinner was a Scandinavian feast prepared by chef Trini Hanneman, and it was absolutely delicious. The highlights for me were the cured salmon and focaccia starter, the lamb stew and black barley, and the cold buttermilk and biscuits for dessert. During the meal, I sat next to Pepe Daya, who recently changed his name from Pepe Patricio because as a Filipino artist, he feels more connected with his ancestral name, Daya than the Christian name given to him by the Spanish. 
I had a great time chatting with him, so after dinner I set up the podcaster to continue our conversation. Joining us was Keelan Tobin, a young award-winning chef who helped prepare the feast. It's um, the Young Chef Grant kind of a scholarship sort of prize, I suppose. <laughs> so I get, I, you know, I got to come here, you know, ba based on that um, and because I'm a chef as well. So I have a particular interest in, well, various facets of the, the weekend. So so we've pulled uh, the two of them. Keelan from uh, the French Alps, where she's currently a chef, here uh, to win an award and then go back to the French Alps. So nobody feels badly for her. Uh, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> and I don't cheesy. mind being in her shoes from time to time. <laughs> and so I want to hear from both of them, uh, because Pepe also has a, a very interesting background. Um, Pepe is, is a performance artist um, who was, let's see, previously uh, a choreographer uh, and dancer, and currently still uh, dances, I believe, and is now doing a leftovers uh, launch tomorrow, uh, mm. where he's gathering all of the leftovers uh, from throughout the weekend um, and turning it into the final lunch. Uh, yeah. And uh, and I know so far he said he has boiled rice on the menu and everything else is is a little bit up in the air and that is a, t a terrifying idea to me tell me how tell me how you uh get into your zen zone uh and how you approach cooking for 200 people without really knowing what you're cooking well if you try to resituate this context of what we have oxford symposium of food and cookery and if you try to think about it more instead of thinking about it as a formal, a very formal gathering of high caliber scholars, academics, artists, chefs, and turn it into just a simple kind of family reunion, then you, you kind of uh, change your perspective a bit and feel about what this gathering is about. But if you actually think about it, it kind of makes sense that the last meal of the conference is all about trying to recollect everything that happened during the past week and digesting from out of it. Well, I, I know we were speaking earlier uh, and, and that you did a, a two-week uh, course at a monastery um, in which it, you didn't speak to anyone, um, you didn't look at anyone, you didn't interact with anyone. It was a form of meditation, you said. The meditation, you can find it in the kitchen space, you can find it in the cooking process. And I think a lot of chefs who find joy in cooking or who find their kind of uh, kind of space in cooking they find they would find it meditative as well because i was as i was telling you informally over dinner for me uh, cooking is something that you do out of hunger because you would like to do something you to cook something because you're hungry or some people around you are hungry and it's a very immediate and local situation that also situate, situates you in a very limited you can say situation and circumstances that is very immediate where you don't have to think so much of the far future or you don't have to think too much of the far past all of this past and future is oscillating within this meditative space that is called cooking digesting however is <laughs> takes a longer time our consumption of life and our production of life is quite quick in itself you know we produce things that are good for us 
but then whatever experience we have in life have lasting impression on us that can be digested over and over and over and over again in other situations that we find ourselves. And I think that's what life is about because life is full of leftovers from what you previously have and you're just taking off from it all the time. So I want to move now from that brilliant, uh, intellectual, uh, expansive, uh, and all connecting. I want to bring that now to the very granular. Give us a peek into the kitchen, uh, Kilin. Just tell us what it was like because she's just prepared uh, or helped to prepare Trina Hanneman's um, Scandinavian feast, um, which is uh, four or five courses uh, and a, a delicious meal but um, must have been a quite elaborate process to set up. So was it pandemonium or um, what, 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 is, what is the, uh, the, the general vibe in the kitchen? I, was, I, I wasn't totally surprised, but I was totally impressed that it was, wasn't chaos at all. Um, I think uh, Trini and her sister and the chef Tim here at St. Catherine's and his team, they were so well organized that you know everything was prepared and they were just totally on top of the work yeah. and it made for such a nice atmosphere that i think reinforced the atmosphere in the dining room as well um and even to go back to what pepe was saying i remember hearing that sort of yoga or meditation was a bit like cooking in the sense that it required practice patience and presence and i i really like i really get that you know i think you can become so absorbed in cooking and the kitchen becomes such a little other space that just things that go on there you kind of have a bond with people and a bond with the food and you're connected then to people in like this the separate space you know and so it was nice to it was nice to come out ye then at the end and, and rob some of your dessert <laughs> just just in time and and sho shove you off your your seat and everything I'm I'm not a, I haven't been a chef for a very long time and I'm learning all the time and I think you know as a chef you have to keep on challenging yourself and you have to keep on working with other people um, and learning from other people you there's no experts that you'll never know at all mm. and you know I mean I could have been scrubbing pots I could have been s sitting around it, it didn't really matter what I was doing it was just to be immersed in that kind of um, atmosphere yeah yeah it was it was fantastic thanks so much for listening if you are interested, the Oxford Companion to Sugar and Sweets officially publishes on May 1st, 2015, but we are hoping to have stock by April 1st for any early birds. It will feature nearly 600 entries by 265 contributors, and has a preface written by Sidney Mintz, the legendary anthropologist and historian of sugarcane. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the Oxford Comment on iTunes and SoundCloud, Thanks again for listening.